September 4th, 2023. I'd like to this morning talk to you about the written words of Halakha part 7. Now, you may have either forgotten parts 1 through 6 or never been present for or listened to parts 1 through 6. Rest assured, you won't need to know anything from parts 1 through 6. It's just the concept which will carry us through over here, which we began deliberating and explaining and delineating in those first six classes. The basic concept and basic idea of, quote, the written words of halakha is that an ironic reality understandably took place within uh, the realm of Torah Sheba'al Peh. By definition, Torah Sheba'al Peh, the oral tradition of Torah, was purposed to be, the Gemara makes clear, oral. And yet, at a certain point, at a specific juncture, it needed to be, as the rabbis describe it, uh, transcribed. It needed to be written down. Once it was written down, though, it took on, so to speak, a life of its own. The oral Torah became a written word of Torah. And what I mean by that is particular and specific realities which came into play because the words were written down. The written words, so to speak, took on a certain sacred nature in and of themselves, and we've discussed many manifestations of that in the past. What I'd like to do today is, at one point in this class, to talk about another a specific manifestation and try to uh, draw that out and uh, understand that. But generally speaking, it's uh, taking a step back and questioning, what are the written words of Torah, of Halakha? And what do I mean by that? Uh, when it comes to something like Tanakh, well, we're well aware that at a specific time, or over the course of a specific time, there was canonization. We know which books are in Tanakh, and then we know which books were left out. The book of Judith, for example. It's a book that, uh, the book of Maccabim. Uh, these are books that, uh, you know, to a certain extent were read, maybe even understood and explained over a long, long period of time, and yet, at some point, left out of the canon of Tanakh, Torah, Nevim, and Ketubim, as we have it. When was and what is, how do we draw the line with regards to Torah Sheba'al Peh? And more specifically, because I'm not going to talk about it in the broadest sense, more specifically, and this is really the theme and the concept of the class, when we're dealing with what's called Kitveyad, in the last hundred plus years, Kitveyad, uh, which means the initial and original manuscripts have really been unearthed and there's been a lot of work. People who are working in the academy, people who are uh, working on a dissertation, uh, doing doctoral studies with regards to Talmud or anything medieval, they're not studying just the texts that meet us in the books on the shelf, they're studying the original texts. How do we determine whether the original text which was either neglected and not used of some rabbi and we only unearthed it and only started using it 50 years ago, whether that's, so to speak, now canonized. And otherwise as well, another circumstance, what if I now turn back and look at an early version of Talmud, an early version of Rashbah, of Harambam, and I see there was a different word or words on the page than the ones that we have now. What's the validity of those words? Do we change the do we change the concept? Do we practice differently, or do kitveya just exist as some sort of academic, um, you know, uh, way of uh, educating ourselves? Again, specifically, what I want to question in this class is the written words of halacha. What are they with regards to specifically as well kitveyad? By so doing, 
want to draw out the way that written words of ironic Torah Shbalpeh take on and have taken on a life of their own. Here's the angle initially. It's from a class of Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, the current Rishon Lesion, Rav Harashi Svaradi in Israel, which he gave a year and a half ago, Parashat Shemot and Tavshin Pebet. And in that class, he was talking about something that the Yosef family began by their father, Hacham Ovadia Yosef, Zichron Olivracha, very intent on focusing on, and that is they made it a mission to make certain that every lay person knows making a beracha in vain is a very severe issue. Happens to be a dispute all the way back about how severe it is. Is it on a biblical level? You've transgressed Lotisa, one of the Ten Commandments, or is it rabbinic in nature? And there are a lot of ramifications. That's not just an educational question, it's a ramifications. Hacham Vadya Yosef and his children are strong of the belief that the Sfaradi way has been, and the majority opinion has been maintained. It's a biblical Isur de Oraita. Berachal is a biblical violation. Tosafot Masechet Roshanandaf Lamed Gimal say almost explicitly not that way. There's a question forever. Is Lotisa transgressed, or is Lotisa specifically when you're in the context of judgment or court? testifying falsely with God's name. That's the general question, and as a result of their opinion in halakha, they've set out to set the record straight on every occasion that they have opportunity to do so. In the context of a class where he was discussing and debating this issue, he brought up another rabbinic personality, a strong Ashkenazic rabbinic personality who passed away some 70 plus years ago, and is known as, the names of his books, Hazon Ish. Ish, is an acronym for his name, Avraham Yeshaya. His name was Rabbi Avraham Yeshaya Karolitz. Rabbi Avraham Yeshaya Karolitz was originally from Europe, but lived in Bnei Brak. Uh, Bnei Brak was, to a certain extent, you know, there's uh, uh, Yankee Stadium was the house that Ruth built. Bnei Brak is the city that Hazon Ish built. So you understand the personality already if you've ever visited Bnei Brak in the last 20, 30 years. Um, Hazon Ish, however, and Hacham Vadya Yosef had a real reverence for him, always referred to him as Pe'er Hador, even though he disagreed with almost everything he said. There's a lot to be said in terms of method with regards to halakha that Hazon Ish had, how it differed from the views of others. I don't want to really focus upon any of that right now, but what I do want to mention is how Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef in this class, in source number one, said the following. He said, Hazon Ish's opinion, again, a strong rabbinic authority, was that Berachal according to Harambam, even is only rabbinic in nature in terms of transgression. Had he seen all the books, had he seen the response of Harambam, She'elot Teshubot Harambam, he would have changed his opinion. He would have known better, but he didn't have access to that book. That book wasn't really produced and published in his lifetime. That's why, but had he had that book, and in turn, we can now understand that his real position, Hazoni, should be and would be that Berachalavatala is a biblical violation, has a strong severity. He goes a step further. He says, My father, Hacham Vadya Yosef, visited Hazonish and he noticed he had very few books on the wall. Had he had more books, he was almost hinting, he would have done a little bit better in his Pesach Halachat. 
Truth is, Rabbi David Eliach, Zichron Olivracha, has an autobiography that he wrote, a short memoir. It's called Ha'avar Shelo Avar. The first two pages, as I recall, are his description of when he visited Hazonish. He was a little boy living in Bnebrak when Bnebrak was still orchards, which is fascinating just to think about because it's so far from orchards today. He described an idyllic countryside, and he had oranges growing and things of that sort. He went to the top of a mountain because he heard about this rabbi. He sneaked into the room because the door was open, if I remember the story correctly, and he found Hazonish lying in the bed with a book open because he was frail and old on top of his head. What book was it? It must have been Shaykh. No, it was Talmud. It was a Gemara. It's the best story in the world. That's who he was. He was put himself to bed with Gemara. There are many Talmud Hachamim who read lots of Torah before bed. That you're lying in bed with a Gemara. Uh, that's what Rabbi Eliyahu said. That's uh, This is a mark of, of greatness and something very unique. Anyway, he didn't have many books. It's well known he didn't have many books. His, his nephew, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who just passed away two years ago, talked about his uncle. He said, my uncle didn't have a full shas. There's a video on YouTube until late in his life, accessible. He knew much, he knew all, but he didn't have many books. Again, the punchline being Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef says, had Hazon Ish had She'elot, Teshubot Harambam, he would have had an altogether different opinion. For me, after reading that, after you know, then hearing it, because you can listen to the class online, it was for me, I couldn't, that didn't sit well with me. And I'm going to explain to you why it didn't sit well with me, Ish, as sit well with me over the course of this class. But again, you might easily say, of course he's right. Had he seen the source, if the source is clear, and it is, he would have changed his opinion. I would argue, and it's not a crazy argument, not at all. He would not and could not and should not, based on his understanding of halakha, change his opinion. And that's why I'd like to bring one case study in order to bring this across for you to understand this idea. The case study goes like this. Have you ever seen the Aleph Bet? Of course you have. Each of us, I think, in the room have gotten an Aliyah. We see letters on the page in front of us. Have you ever seen letters written differently? Of course you have as well. You've gotten different Aliyot, a different Sifre Torah. I made the mistake as a young rabbi. I went to Achnasat Sefer Torah and I looked at the Sefer Torah. I was fresh off of learning the Halachot of, of, of Safrut and the different letters. I was familiar with how you write which ones, whatever. So I looked at the Sefer Torah. I started questioning and asking the Sofer. I got very defensive. Just let them do their thing. You know, they have different traditions, whatever. Let them do the thing. But there are different ways of writing different letters. Uh, a het, for example, is the c- combination of two vavs or a vav and a zayin with a straight line on top or a, sh- a line, half a line, half a line and a triangle, half a triangle. There's different letters and different questions with regards to each letter to the extent that some of these letters and some of these circumstances, halakhically speaking, if it's written quote unquote wrong, it could invalidate whatever it's written on. And sometimes serious issues with regards to that sort of matter when we're not familiar with it. But the letter Yod, each of us, I think, would say, is the easiest letter to draw. It's just one line and another line, is it not? The letter Yod is the easiest thing to conceptualize. And indeed, the Gemara says if the Kuso Shel Yod, a Kotz, is like the, a stick or a, uh, um, a peg or, a, or a, maybe it's like a thorn. A Kotz is really a thorn. If a Yod doesn't have its thorn, it's invalidated. It's not okay. What's the thorn of a yod? Says Rashi, it goes like this. Yod could have been understood as a horizontal line. 
the thorn of the yod is the vertical line on the right-hand side. Each of us, I think, could think about that. You could see it on the page in front of us. You see over here, it says, Alon Hashi'ur, source number one. The yod is just one vertical line. If you write it in a Sefer Torah, it's a horizontal line and a vertical line. The Gemara is saying if it doesn't have that vertical line, it's invalidated. Fair enough. Tosafot famously quotes from Rabbeinu Tam, we're quoting from Gemara, the Rishonim, and Masechem, and Achot, and Dav Kavtet. Rabbeinu Tam says, really? The Gemara needed to tell you that if it's missing the vertical line, it's, uh, it's, it's not a yod? I mean, what do you think? That's, uh, then it's a dot on the page. It's got to have a horizontal and a vertical. Instead, says Rabbeinu Tam, it's referring to, well, let's read his words. His words are... It says, It is the bent over, kafuf, like we say with the shofar, the bent over head. What's the bent over head? Head. Generally speaking, this is understood as meaning the following. Not only a horizontal and a vertical line, but on the edge, the leftmost edge of the horizontal line, it should go down as well, it should dip a little. Can you imagine that? So it means that the yod, so to speak, has a little bit edged down, curves at the end, horizontal line, and then comes down on the right. Now obviously on the right it kind of curves and it's longer, but on the left-hand side there's something that goes down. By a show of hands, how many of you think about a yod when you see it, that when you envision it in your mind with the left side bent down? Very few, only Eddie. Oh, fascinating. Um, most of us do not, and for good reason. Most Svaradi writings do not have a yod written like that. But that's the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is a strong northern French rabbi. His opinion is clear and to the point. The question is whether it's accepted or not. We'll discuss that in a moment. But that's the description. Should this have any bearings, any issues? Certainly so. If a get, if a divorce document is written without the kutso shel yod, it's invalidated. Well, what's the kutso shel yod? Well, if it's written, quote unquote, with the Sephardic letters, you might make the claim, if it's missing this bent over on the left side, maybe it's invalidated. Maybe if we follow the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam, better yet, personally, I once in my life had my tif, more than once, but once in my life that I remember had my tefillin checked. I was living in a neighborhood in Jerusalem called Ramat Eshkol, and I went to the synagogue and they were checking tefillin. Young 23-year-old boy, I said, uh, sure, I checked my tefillin, didn't know anything about it one way or another. I got a little bit nervous after I handed it to him. I thought it was a little bit dangerous. I didn't know anything about it. He wasn't going to show it to me. He could really say anything he wanted. He could charge me $2,000 just to fix it, whatever. Anyway, he gave him back to me. He said, beautiful, fantastic. He said, however, I needed to add kutso shel yod. I said, what are you talking about? This much I did know. Tefillin, if there's a mistake on the parchment of tefillin with regards to letters, can't be corrected. Tefillin need to be written in order. That's the halakha. So you can't change letters, whereas in a mezuzah, in a sefer Torah, there's a letter that's off. You fix the letter. Tefillin are not that way. It's a unique halakha. The Gemara mentions, nefsak la halakha. So I said, how'd you fix that? 
He says, no, when it comes to the kutso shil yod, when it comes to that little additional part, many of the poskim, I later discovered it's Agura and others, say that that's not so necessary to the extent that it invalidates, but I added it in, it's good, according to Benish Hainz, or whatever he mentioned to me at the time. That was an interesting story for me. I didn't realize the significance of that conversation until years later, because this kutso shil yod, historically, there's a lot of negativity from more of the secular world, or the less religious world, and they make fun of it, generally speaking, by kutso shil yod. You're going to invalidate a divorce document. There's a famous poem written by uh, an individual. Kutso shil yod, you're missing that. That's what invalidates. That's what chains up this lady. Regardless, what I'd like to talk about then as a case study is this kutso shil yod, the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam with regards to a kutso shil yod. Again, that dip down left-hand side of the kutso shil yod. It's a good question. Bet Yosef in Siman Lamedvav quotes Rabbeinu Tam. Even believes that Rashi might agree with it as well. He's just commenting on this on this segment of the Gemara before, you know, so to speak. That's what you're supposed to have. Not fully, it's not recorded in Shohan Aruch, but the fact that Bet Yosef does record it might tell us. That's the halakha. There's a vast debate, a broad debate, about what was the mainstream. This is a great question, Simon. Now, let's for a moment ignore us. For a moment, because I already gave you a thing that we, you know, many of our stuff don't have it. Now, let's focus on the Ashkenazic world. Uh, what would someone like Hazonish say? Well, if I told you, it's Rabbeinu Tam's opinion. Of course, Hazonish, in source number four, in one of the letters that he wrote, he didn't only write a, a commentary on the Gemara, he wrote several other works, he wrote prolifically. He writes in this, in source number four, he says, if you're missing a Kutso Shel Yod, you're missing the letter. What's a Kutso Shel Yod? Rabbeinu Tam's Kutso Shel Yod. What's that? The diptam on the left-hand side. Makes a lot of sense. Stands very clear and to the point in this respect. Lastly, and getting to the point, was asked the following. Nishalti. Source number five. Let's read a little bit of this. He says the majority of the Sephardic scribes do not make the dip down Rabbeinu Tam's Yod. Is there something that they can hang their hats on? Can we feel comfortable with our tefillin, mezuzot, and sifre Torah, which don't have a Rabbeinu Tam kutso shil Yod? So the first part of the Teshubah is establishing, as Simon just discussed, how is that simple that we always accepted Rabbeinu Tam per se? But there is good evidence that Rabbeinu Tam's opinion was accepted. How do we deal with that? How do we understand that? In the next paragraph on the page, where I put an ellipsis because it's really toward the end of the, the Teshubah, he writes the following, Chacham Ovadia Yosef, Ube'emet, Sheba'ikar shitat Rabbeinu Tam bedin kutso shel yod, Shetafsu ha'halonim beda'ato zal, Dahainu kot smali lemata, Veshehu le'ikuva, he says, you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that that might not have been the intent of Rabbeinu Tam. Hold up a second. We read Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam said, Dehu rosho kafuf. Kafuf means it bends down. That sounds very clear. It's talking about a bent down side, left hand side of the yod. It says, 
הדם נאנם בעקומת רבה, אפילו כתב אחד מעקבן כל נקוצו של יוד, היינו חודו של מעלה שנתון כלפי פניו. וכן הוא ברעביה, ובשאלות תשובות הרשב"ס, וכן הוא כתב באורחות חיים. Uh, before I explain to you the explanation that we just read, let me just tell you the names that we just read from. We read from a book called Mahazor Vitri, we read from something called Ra'avya, and we read from something called Orchot Hayim. It's true, because I'm, I'm, I, I like this stuff, I could tell you much of each of their biographies. In the room, I imagine, I could be wrong, there's lots of scholars in the room, most people don't know those names, for good reason. They're not household names. Why are they not household names in terms of rabbinic literature? They were gedolim, they lived in different lands, different ways, and different things. The answer is because their works were not widespread and many of them not even published over the course of several hundred years after their death. So that being the case, the question in turn rises as follows. The fact that, and we'll define what it is in a second, they each have a different interpretation, a different version of what Rabbeinu Tam meant, does that have validity, it's the same type of question we began with, in the context of a legal system called halacha? Do you understand? What is their opinion? Their approach is that what Rabbeinu Tam meant or said allegedly was not the horizontal line, obviously not the vertical line, that's Rashim. It wasn't the quotes going down, it was a quotes going up. It was what we would call like a tag, like a crown to the letter. That one, when I think you close your eyes and you think about a yod, you might see it that way. You see it the horizontal, vertical, and then at the end of the horizontal, on the left-hand side, you see something going up a little bit. That's not so far-fetched in terms of envisioning it. Sephardic ones will have that. Several authorities recorded that's what Rabbeinu Tam's position was all along. Well, that being the case, says Chacham Ovadia Yosef, now that I discovered all these books, now that all these authorities came back to life with the publication of their works, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of validity to their words. We entered into the courtroom, but they were dead for hundreds of years in our lively conversation about Rabbeinu Tam's position, says Chacham Ovadia Yosef, if it's in a book and it's validated, it's kosher for our conversation, for our deliberation, determination of halacha. That's a very bold statement of Chacham Ovadia. That's his position. Chacham Ovadia's position is, and we'll discover this through and through, that as more publications come to light, it's a quasi-academic approach. He applies it to halacha. We, in turn, accept them, embrace them, and resuscitate them, changing what we've done if necessary. Yes, Elliot. It doesn't feel like that's so shocking. We found other sources the question is, Elliot Chama, whether, you're saying it right, publications from the Kyrgyz, as interesting as they are, as educated and as scholarly as will become, as religious as will be determined, whatever word you want to apply, for sure, are they normative? Do we now apply it to practice? If it was discovered in the Cairo Geniza and not used for several hundred years, not known since its, public, since its first writing, is it valid as public, a legal document? I think the public, the public judges' writings on their, you know, whether they're accepted or not over a certain amount of time. It's not a, right, so, just because it was written down. So, so Elliot, Gabby is making the point that in a legal system, a socially governed legal system such as halakha, if the public didn't accept it, 
maybe because it was just not known, maybe for other reasons, it in turn might be invalidated. Chacham Vadeh Yosef has no such notion, at least over here. Now, it's true, he has other angles, he has precedents that the Svaradim have been writing it this way, there are other opinions, he calls it a safek sefeka, but even bringing this into the conversation, it's a bold statement. Isn't handwriting, like, I know they had the Ashur that they switched Ashuri, yeah. But in general, Handwriting, not published blocks. Is, is, it, is a personality. It's not a. How did you how did you intone? Because there's so much which is tradition and passed down and determined from how we've done it that he collects. It's a very novel thing he does and not easy to wrap your head around. But indeed, there is such a thing. We do invalidate but certain letters. The right? idea of, of, of uh, Chacham Avadya and the idea of him taking it to the biblical level of, of uh, Abedachal is it, is it because... Is it because it's, it has some kind of cosmic thing, the Hashem's name? Or is it you're trivializing it, you're using it every day, and you're throwing it around? I'm not certain. I do know. I, I got you. I'm not certain. I mean, he's, he's arguing it's biblical in nature. We could determine whether he means it mystically or another. It means in terms of severity. It means in terms of if I have a situation where I'm uncertain whether to make this beracha or not, will I in turn abstain? If it's only rabbinic in nature, saying, I might what's not. What's the idea behind that? Is uh, it trivializing every beracha? You know, make a beracha. I gotcha. I, it might be both. I, I don't know. You know, I. No, I, what I, no the court system. The court system. He's asking. Gabby's asking if lotisa is applied outside of the court. He's asking, what's the philosophy? What's the issue? That's, that's a question. Because that's, I don't know why he's so severe. On yes, right. Can the public accept a document now that was written? So, so, so I, I believe the answer could be yes. You're far, you're far off from such a reality in terms of these sources. Um, in other words, Hazonish, we will discover in a moment, will argue no. So it, yes. Perhaps. Uh, the answer is during their lifetime. You have to imagine, yes, these were these were giants in their lifetime. Their communities were following their their rulings. You see, but again, it means that for Hakam of Yosef, and there's no surprise here, as Elliot pointed out. We've seen him do this. We expect him to do this. He's very textual in nature, and textual in nature means if there's a valid text, it is valid. He's not so much into the social dynamic of things. He's not so much into the acceptance level and things of that sort. It's valid because, it's author- because it is authentic. That in and of itself makes it valid. Chacham Vadya Yosef, in fact, I'm going to have to figure out in a moment where, he's, where he breaks ways from Hazonish. Chacham Vadya Yosef himself points out in his introduction to Yabiya Omer Chelekeh um, that this matter might be something that divides him from Hazonish. Now what I'm suggesting of the course this is not just methodological as we'll discuss in a moment. It's more philosophical in nature as well. What is halakha for each of them? Yes, Rabbi. Can you just develop what you suppose? Because it seems odd that if you have the testimony of, this is what Rabbi Tamtar looked like or 
No, they're not testifying to his Sefer Torah. They're quoting Ra'avya and others generations afterwards, Bachazor Vitri, etc. They're quoting what Rabbeinu Tam said. It's either an interpretation or an accepted uh, thing of that sort. But in the words that we find on the page of Rabbeinu Tam, it's not, there's no mention of that. I, I'm getting there, getting there. I, at this point, I don't know. At this, at this point, what I've developed and understood is the following, is that Hazonish, either because he didn't know about these others, or he didn't care about these other sources will be the suggestion. Not, not that he doesn't care, but he doesn't care about them in the context of halakha. He maintains Rabbeinu Tam as it meets our eyes on the page. That is what a kutzor shel yod is. Chacham Vadeh Yosef is not taken into account much of the other literature. In, in terms of the question of canonizing halachic texts, Chacham Vadeh Yosef seems to embrace anything that is authentic. Right? Anything that is authentic is part of our conversation. Hazonish might be outside of that, and not might be, he certainly is. And in the introduction to Yabiyah Mechelekeh, Hamad Yosef is really talking about something else over there, but he talks about this as well. Here's what he's talking about really over there. He's talking about the following, and you'll understand, we'll piece it all together. He's talking about if Shohan Aruch writes something, but he, Rabbi Yosef Karo, didn't have access to something which preceded him, a text, is that in turn a reason for us to say, well, we're not going to follow Shohan Aruch. Again, Shohan Aruch wrote something, he didn't have access to the words of Harambam on something. He didn't have access to the words of Olam Geonim on something. Can we determine, based on his methodology, that had he seen it, he would have changed his mind, and in turn, we should practice differently. Says Chacham Vadya Yosef, should take us a no surprise, absolutely. That's what he told us over here as well. Wasn't talking about Shulchan Aruch, but he said if there's a text which was authentic, it is valid to determine law. In turn, he says the same thing about Shulchan Aruch. Gives him more power. I mean, it could disempower as well. It gives you a certain vulnerability. If someone discovers something tomorrow, you have to defend now. So I'm not certain sure. per se, but you it gives, mean, for a bibliophile, it certainly does give power. Right? In other words, if you have access to, to records and to books and you have knowledge of them, you are very empowered if you take such an approach. No question. Um, you know, whereas Hazonish, ironically, who did, yeah, whereas Hazonish, quite the opposite, who didn't have many, but maybe, I hear you, I'm suggesting, they were, they, they, it wasn't after the fact. It wasn't that one had the books and the other one didn't. It's that one felt the necessity for all the books and the other ones didn't in terms of his understanding. Right. Validity, doesn't validity have to be kind of acknowledged by the people that are, I mean, not for right, right, if you find something that's written. Quack it. Right. Quack it. So there is actually, there is a, a, a story, it's quoted in the book Nefesh Haraf, uh, Professor Saul Lieberman, who was uh, quite the scholar in terms of uh, medieval texts, he discovered something prior to medieval, he discovered a, a work from the time of the Geonim, going back some 1300 to 1200 years. And in it, a specific law, which clearly against everything we know in terms of Tuma'an uh, Tahara that he found, and he was very excited. He was at a party with his cousin, with Rabbi Salavechik, and he showed him, did you see what I found in the one of the Geonim? Isn't this fantastic? And so the alleged story, the story as it says, Rabbi Salavechik said to him, that Gaon, and remember Gaon is not only time period of rabbis, it also means quite the scholar, a brilliant person, is an Amha'aretz, which is supposed you know, to do, adduce laughter. You know, Gaon being an Amha'aretz. In other words, what he was suggesting is, and it's a long lines of what you're saying, Gabby, that text, he found an old text, an ancient text. 
That's not valid. Just look at its words. So yes, you'll have to take into account what's being written as well. But Hazonish draws the line much, much sharper. And a strong division over here in terms of canonizing, so to speak, the halachic text. Hazonish, as cited in source number six, as, as he writes in many places, as is well known, would it not give authoritative anything to Kitveyad? If there was anything, now of course you have to define what's, what's Ketav Yad, what, when was this in, where's the cutoff, he never fully delineates that, but in his mind any new texts are outside of the canon. You can read them, you can learn from them, you can grow from them, you cannot practice based on them. That's Hazonish's position. It's a bold and strong position, but that he's clear and consistent. Of course, in our context, he's going to be clear and consistent as well. The fact that he says Kutsoshil Yod in his letters that we read is defined like Rabbeinu Tam as we have it on the page. Of course it is. All those minor authorities, the ones we don't know their names, the ones who were published later, they don't have authority. It says Chamvadya Yosef, I disagree with that. That's what he writes over here. He says, I believe that if something is discovered and Shohan Aruch didn't have access to it, didn't know it, it is authoritative, provided that it is authentic and real and right. Um, if in turn, on our issue, if we discovered writings about Rabbeinu Tam afterwards, they are authoritative as well. Hazonish disagrees. Hazonish draws the line. For what reason? It, there is a, 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 a long and well-written and researched, became a little controversial in the Haredi um, uh, scholarly world, a book called Ha-Hazonish. It's, I don't know, 1,500 pages or so, written by Professor Benny Brown. And Professor Benny Brown writes about everything and anything Hazonish in this book. As a matter of fact, Rabbi David Eliach, and the book came out, I bought it for him. He was very excited to read it. And then I bought for him the Haredi scholarly literature lambasting the book, fighting with the book, and I bought it, I gave it to him from the, uh, from the uh, what's called Yeshurun, it's a periodical. And he read both of them, he said he loved the book, he said the way everyone writes, that's not old school rabbinic writing, we don't write like that, he felt it was very just disrespectful, he said he, this is not a milham tashel Torah, he says they're just going at it, whatever. Okay, that's just parenthetical, the point is, he, suggest, he points out three different approaches that Hazonish himself mentions in his works with regards to why nothing which is new is included. What are the three reasons? Number one, a very philological type of approach. Uh, what do I mean by that? It's a very, has to do with methodology. How do you know that these sources are sufficient and there's not three other sources differently? How do you know this is the authoritative text and it's not another one? For lack of knowing the full breadth of what's going to be on earth, we're not just accepting. It similar reminds me in that respect of the question that was posed once to Gaon Mivilna, as, as is reported in the book Keter, Keter uh, um, as in, why don't you wear tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam? Why do you only wear tefillin of Rashi? His answer was, well, if I put on tefillin of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, I could come up with, based on my knowledge of the sources, a good 12, 15 other tefillin. I'll just keep putting on the tefillin. I can't really determine. This is the text we have. The fact that there are many and might be many more is just going to make things confusing, one approach. Another approach that Hazonish, in terms of saying, I'm not accepting these new texts, a little bit more religiously inspired, but wait till you hear the last one, he said it, it's, uh, it's la'az al-harishonim. 
all the earlier authorities who followed the texts that we had until then, what are we saying about them? That's not a simple statement. How do you determine that? If they were wrong, we have to stand up and say they were wrong. We can't be embarrassed. I mean, that was the second approach to it. It's an important, interesting question. It touches a lot on the social dynamic, perhaps, of halakha as well. His last approach, as Benny Brown presents it here in source number seven, goes like this. The text of the Gemara and of the Rishonim, as we have them, has embedded and imbued into each of those words and letters, Yad Hashem, the hand of God. Which means to say, which means to say, not that God wrote it, but the fact that the community accepted this and determined based on this. Now, if I said it the way Gabby said it a moment ago, people would be much more comfortable. If I said it, the community accepted it, and therefore, that's the authoritative text. We'd say that's sufficient. Fascinatingly, at least in my mind, he goes a step further. He says the community accepted it. That was the hand of God in the acceptance. Either way you slice it, do you realize what happened over here? We're dealing with words which are humanly written, no question that human minds produce. Torah Shabbat an oral tradition, not a textual one from God, but rather a tradition traces its way back to God, but that's what we're dealing with. His vision is that there's the stream and hand of God Revel- in... Revelatory. Revelatory, that's the right word. There's a, almost a, a Ruach HaKodesh spirit. As a matter of fact, Hazonish elsewhere, I didn't put it on the page in front of you, he is quoted as having said, I don't know that he wrote this, that he didn't like that they were publishing Gemarot that had punctuation. He didn't like punctuation in the Gemara. He says, not traditional. I can read it one way, and you could read it another way, and the Rishonim learned it another way. We need to leave it open. It's always reminded me, not always, I read this two, three years ago, it reminded me of Radvaz, Rabbi David ben Zimra was questioned, why do Sifre Torah not have the Ta'amim and Nikudot in it? His answer was, because there's an infinite expressions of truths in this. Can you imagine? Hazonish, to a certain extent, turned Torah in that respect into Torah There's a tremendous irony and that's what I meant by fleshing out the written words of halakha, how Torah Peh, much like other things in our lives, got transformed in this ironic way from being an oral tradition which was explanatory to being a text which could be interpreted and should be interpreted as well. But again, to catch you up to date then with regards to the, to the direction and the thought of, of being set forth in this class, the written words of halakha, uh, number seven, pr- produced the following question. What do we do with regards to quote-unquote new texts? Are they authoritative or not? Effectively, from our case study of the Kutzosh el Yod, we suggested it's a dispute. Hacham Vadya Yosef and his adherents would say, we bring them in. Where do they draw the line? Not fully clear. They can't accept the Gaon Am Ha'aretz, but they'll accept much. Hazonish very strongly draws the line. Philosophically speaking, they're debating more than just methodology. They're debating what is Torah Shvalpeh. They're debating what are these texts. For Chacham Vadya Yosef, I'm suggesting it's another opinion and another opinion. For Hazonish, that's not just an opinion. That's a, that's a canonized a, a piece of a art, which is now a part. You can't just insert something else. I'll conclude just with this. We mentioned earlier that Chacham Vadya Yosef, in the context of 
that introduction to, to Yabiya Omer Chelekeh, he was talking really about Shohan Aruch. And the question was, what if a later text comes about that Shohan Aruch didn't have, it preceded him, but he didn't have it, it came about later, do we change the Pesach Halacha? We said, Chacham Vadi Yosef says, and he's somewhat consistent about this, absolutely. We've given examples about this in the past. You might recall standing for Aseret HaDiberot or sitting down from Shelo Tishbot HaRambam, maybe making a synagogue on top, making a dormitory, a place to sleep on top of a synagogue, and many other such examples. The, the truth is that was far from only the, the only accepted approach. Sorry, yes, Abby? Same question. I'm afraid you pulled the Kamalai you said. Um, I mean, obviously, when he was alive and he was able to find a new text, make a determination, okay, the Chacham, that the, that the role of the Zalachaj, the authority, that makes sense. And so I want to conclude that I said, uh, at the same time, Right. Right. I hear what you're saying. Listen, ultimately speaking, there's not much. I mean, for him, it's much easier than your your, your questions. Almost for him, uh, there's not so. It can't be false. It can't be internally flawed. It can't be that you can ask objective, simple questions on it. Otherwise, it's accepted. He counts every opinion as part of his determinations. He's consistent with this. He's not inconsistent. He had 20,000 books in his library, his son attests to, and his son's, his son's testimonials, and he read all of them. And what his son was saying in that first source we read is they're all important opinions. That's, that's effectively his position. It's a lot more simple than someone who's gonna have to draw the line and make delineations and decisions. Do you know what I'm saying? We're talking about old texts. What about knowledge that comes that, that comes to the forefront? I mean, they're going to just throw it out? You know, uh, archaeology or some kind of philology? You know. Yeah, yeah, that's a great well, question. That's a great question. It will, to a large extent, be the same type of question. Chacham Vadya Yosef, in fact, in that Teshubah, sure in that Teshubah, sure Kutzor Shel Yod, was a, on some, uh, the question is how much he read, but on the Kutzor Shel Yod, he attests to the fact that he had a student, not a student, he had a contemporary younger than him, who found, actually it's in one of the, one of the museums in Israel, a Sefer Torah from the time period of Ran, of Rabbeinu Nisim from Jerome. That was a historical Spanish Sefer Torah. Question is whether it was written by Rabbeinu Nisim, not really our question that's so relevant. It's an old Sefer Torah which seems to have been used. And in it, he writes in his Teshubah, they found that the Yod did not have the Rabbeinu Tam going down. Uh, he rests his case. Hazonish would scoff at that. He would say archaeology is no different than any of these other things. It's not canonized. It's not a part of it. So that same question is part of this larger conversation of how do we determine so normative practice? Really, the question is the integrity of the rabbi. And how do you look at a rabbi who sees something in front of his face and, and doesn't accept like But again, what, yeah, would you think of, what would you think of a guy like that? No, but you're, 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 demeaning, you're demeaning that person to say that it's but maybe, blocking way in front but of Gabe, the Gabe, maybe not. Maybe alternatively, Hazonish would make the following claim. Again, it, you, 
he firstly would, he did make this religious spiritual claim that it's God's hand, but even if he didn't, even if he didn't use those words, he could just as well be saying that communally this was not the, so archaeologically you unearthed it, um, you, you, found, you found something, but ultimately speaking, I mean, ultimately, for example, you know, we do have, I have two books on this, we have evidence of tens, if not dozens of tefillin, different types of tefillin. Does that mean, as a result, each one of them is valid? Alternatively, does what meets our eyes in the Gemara, what has been and continues to be the accepted norm in terms of what tefillin look like and the parchments inside them, those are the practiced ones. And it was, it, it, archaeology will bring forth something, the question, it's, it's a question more than anything. It's not that, uh, how could you not accept it? It's not that I'm... De- Someone might. It's not that I'm de- denying its existence. It's that I'm denying it as a legal basis. document or Fine, giving legal so that basis. Shows you that Minhag is, is sure is a driving factor in terms much of much more than No question. And as a result, back to Avi's point from earlier, Hacham Vader Yosef gets into ironically. It's the point as well to Joe from earlier. You think he's strengthened by saying everything comes in, and I know it all. Ironically, it might hurt him. The more that's discovered, the more that comes out, might in turn reverse what he said. Validated in some, you're saying they'll invalidate, validated in some respect. Chacham ben Zion Abashaul in source number eight, as cited by Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, alternatively has that Hazon Ish type of approach. His approach, when it comes to the words of Shohan Aruch, is that if there's a later authority or a later text, not, excuse me, a text which is discovered and unearthed later, that has no validity in changing the Pesach of Shohan Aruch. Again, you might say, but it's not being honest to the system. Alternatively, it is so. How do we explain it? One of those three ways of Hazonish, all valid in this context. There's a cute story even tells in it that the son of Hafez Haim of Rabbi Yisrael Meir HaKohen of Radin, the author of Mishnah Burah, asked him about different manuscripts and things that came to light. And he said, should we change different things? He said, I don't think so, because just as much as that goes against what we're writing, just wait a few weeks and they'll find something that goes with what we are writing. That's really that first approach. And terms of saying from a philo- philological standpoint it's hard to really determine what's in and what's not as a result we, we're going to work with what we have but effectively then the written words of halakha as discussed in this class a addressed well what does enter into this canon but that's assuming there is a canon whereas for hacham vadeh yosef there's not so much of a canon it is at its core Torah Shabbat Alpeh, so to speak. I don't know if it's true. You'd imagine if you if you piece the stories that I told together, he'd be very excited about a punctuated Gemara. Beautiful. What's wrong with that? Whereas Hazoni is a very different approach to this matter. There's almost a canonized version of what we have and what we use. The traditions are very much entrenched with regards to what's going to be a valid document and argument in our legal system and conversations. In this Right. That's great. Great points. Well, Robbie's pointing out, and and you got me. Um, you got me only because I didn't have the greatest example in that respect. I have one or two others, but they, they won't work as well either. What Robbie says is that this source, it's very, very father-like, this source that I'm building this from, our case study of the Kutso Shilyot, could have been better 
What does he mean by that? Had Chacham Vadya Yosef said, I discovered X, Y, and Z, and therefore everything you've been doing, let's change it because of this, I would have been making a strong case for the fact that he, he takes everything and he validates it and accepts it. Alternatively, over here, he's really after the fact. He says, this is the practice of the Sephardic world. Let me see if there's a way to rationalize it. It's less strong with regards to stating and making clear that that's his general approach. It's an interesting point. It needs more development in that respect, but it seems clear to me that is his methodology. And in turn, not only is it methodology, that's really the crux of the class, it's a philosophy. And what I mean by it being a philosophy is that for Hakam Vadya Yosef, the oral tradition, is ever growing to a certain extent in terms of the more opinions that get amassed can shift and change things around. Whereas for Hazonish, the fact that the oral tradition is now written, quote unquote, that in turn gave a certain canonization. This is in and that's not. But why is this not in? So says Chacham Yitzchak Yosef, had he just known to come full circle about the She'elot Teshuvot HaRambam, wouldn't he have changed his opinion? I think it's quite clear from this class that the answer is no. Chazonish was not only, maybe it was just a byproduct of his financial status and his circumstances, he didn't have many books. Alternatively, it was a methodology. Alternatively, it was a philosophy. He was very much in line with the thought that these are the books we've historically and traditionally used. These are the books I need to determine the law. So much so that he had a confidence, a longer conversation another time, that his vision, his understanding of, so to speak, the soul of the law was right and would follow through irrespective of anything that's found afterwards. Yes, Elon. Rabbi, this philosophy of, of almost petrified, of, of practice becoming petrified as a result of quote-unquote continuous revelation is so anti Agreed. So you have changing local contexts, but you have practices that are petrified as a result of a belief in continuous revelation. Agreed. Understood. So what Eli is pointing out is a certain letdown with the approach of Hazonish Ude'imeh in saying they ossified Torah Shba'alpeh. Torah Shba'alpeh was supposed to be alive. And now that we've said this is in and that's not, I agree with you to a certain extent. Alternatively, or at the same, the other side of the coin is, there is within these texts, if he turned, let's point out this way, if he turned Gemara into Torah Shbikhtav, realize that interpretation of the Gemara now has infinite expressions. Not really, but has many expressions. In other words, whereas for someone like Chacham Vadya Yosef, well, these are the books that we had that interpreted the Gemara, and more books you find will be in, but that's Books say it, you can accept it. For Hazonish, it's true. I've stunted it in terms of the book inclusion, but I've to a certain extent opened it in terms of, but now I created a new rich terrain to unearth new ideas because I'm not beholden per se by those texts that were in and weren't in. This became, so to speak, a Torah Bichtav, which now you can open up and interpret. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in other words, what I'm suggesting is there is a silver lining to Chazonish. The silver lining is they've over-accentuated the texts that we have already and in turn given them a status that you could derive law and keep it lively to a certain extent. The biggest is Harambam. Sometimes Whatever he has in the Mishnah Torah, whatever he wrote, he 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 ruled. I'm not he ruled against it, but he created a 
a certain ruling for somebody that sure. is not so, based on what his own writing is. Sure, so in other words, speaking to this point, what Gabby's pointing out is even within the closed book, my favorite story on this, it's, a, it's written in the book Meged Givot Olam. And Meged Givot Olam, once upon a time, as the story is told, someone came to Rab Moshe Feinstein and asked him a question. He wrote a Teshuvah about it, I don't know, Mutar Asur. He, someone else came and asked him about it, he had a shift in mind, and he wrote Mutar Asur, the opposite of the first time. He said to him, don't you want to retract the first one? Don't you want to He said, no, Elu Elu Elohim Hayim. In other words, he gave a validity to them both, even though it was both his opinion, along those lines that it's not per se ossifying and closing it, it's just changing the way in which it will have to be lively. If it does become dead, if it does become static, you certainly have um, defied the purpose of it. Um, that in turn, again, just to state it in a sentence, the written words of halacha, the question A with regards to what, so to speak, is the canonized version of it with regards to later kitve yad, and secondly, how do we conceptualize that? What does that mean for us in terms of Torah Shba'al Peh? That's what we discussed today. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen. Amen.